This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, y'all. It's Monica. I have been on the road and running in all directions, doing all sorts of things a mom has to do without any of it sounding like it's a lot. But it all takes time. So I'm going to be posting a little bit less for the next few months. Probably won't get to too many deep dives proper, but I am stockpiling interviews just to be sure we can all keep up on things of the world as life happens. If you want to catch a few cute anecdotes from my life lately, as well as links to all the audio and video I've put out in the last month, check out my latest newsletter at monicasdeepdives.com. I have their book recommendations, cocktail recipes, glossary entries, and lots more, believe it or not. And in the meanwhile, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mystic Mark from the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. It could be the longest podcast I've ever hosted, so I broke it into two parts. It is perfect listening for working around the house or for a long drive. So make sure you have a full tank and enjoy. This is Monica Perez here with Mystic Mark from the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, ready to bring us a deep dive on the cradle of the cabal, skull and bones. And this is something I've been waiting for with for, with bated breath for since he suggested it to me a little while ago. So I really want to hear the whole story, top to bottom. Strap on your tanks. We are going deep with a dive master. Thank you so much, Mark, for being here. How are you doing? I love your whole scene. It gives me a very, uh, very zen vibe. So thank you for bringing that. Oh, wow. Yeah, thank you. Well, I have a sort of a odd balls mix of things. So we have the Buddhist prayer flags, uh, some kind of celestial flag. Uh, this guy is a Kachina doll. You might not be able to see him behind the mic stand there, but, uh, and then this guy is like a Hindu God. So yeah, I don't know if this is any what and Bob Marley, of course, and Sam Tripoli back there too. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's a lot going on. We could spend a whole podcast just, just piecing apart what's behind me, but, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I love this new show, Deep Dives. I think this is awesome. And, uh. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for accepting my offer of uh, diving into Skull and Bones. Yes, thank you. I just, I always want to know more. And I feel like if you put in the time and effort or even just have a little bit of curiosity, you can connect the dots or bring a few little tidbits that other people haven't heard that make things clear. And even just in my cursory examination of Skull and Bones or refreshing my memory from past research, Still, I reread it, and some of this stuff just blows me away. But I don't want to steal any of your thunder. So you want to just start from the top and tell us, like, what is it? What is Skull and Bones? Why were you even interested in it? And, like, let's just go from there. 
Yeah, I'd love to start there. And there's no way you could steal the thunder here. This is a, a collaborative effort. So if you have things that come to mind, please tell me because there is, uh, this is an active, ongoing research project. And it started, well, almost I have to tell you, years ago. Ooh. I'm at I'm at my mom's, hey. and there was just a skull sitting on her table <laughs> that someone found in the backyard. So I thought it was very appropriate for our little conversation. Oh, wow! It's apparently it's a red fox. I put it out on Twitter, and people sent me like little diagrams of different skulls. It's definitely got canine. Check this. And this is forward looking. The... Yeah, this but you is got the mandible of a red fox. So look at that. really. Oh my gosh, because this is only the top. We're going to put it together. Oh, okay. I can't. That. <laughs> Here you go. Like some kind of superhero movie in the making. That's, yeah, right. And then you have this like weird fox. But um, yeah, so you were, you were started to become interested in this 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. 10 years ago, I was freshly out of high school, uh, in college, and I happened to go to college. Not at Yale University, but right next door at a community college titled uh, Aptly Gateway Community College. And I definitely entered into a gateway uh, and, and came out on the other side of a whole new world I didn't know existed. Because growing up where I grew up, New Haven was five you know, miles, 10 miles away. But because of the way my life was sort of structured, you know, I just lived in this little suburb and I walked to school, took my bike here and there, never really went to the city much, you know, it was kind of a small town feeling. But when I was about 18, 19, I go to college and I start walking around New Haven. I'm just taken by the architecture, the environment, the the caliber of conversations you could eavesdrop on. I mean, it was a really interesting place to be, especially in 2012. 2013 because we had this whole Occupy Wall Street movement that had just occurred and the the center portion of New Haven was occupied. The whole green was full of homeless and uh, protesters and you know all sorts of in-betweeners. But, uh, but yeah, I kind of jumped into the mix in that milieu, kind of a radical young guy, always questioning authority, questioning the narrative I was given at school. So I was already sort of interested in like the whole Occupy thing and what was going on. So I just made my way downtown to the green as much as I could. And really by then there wasn't anybody on the green, but the energy was, was there. And at first I thought, oh, it was, you know, something to do with this Occupy Wall Street thing. But really in hindsight, the green has that energy it's maintained that energy and i guess that's why you know over the centuries really it's been a gathering place for people and i intuitively tapped into that and uh you know 10 years ago that's just the flavor that was the flavor of the protest things have changed much you know really drastically since then but uh I, yeah i remember i remember the occupy it was when i first started in radio which i had never meant to be in radio so it's not like i there was any progression there i just somebody asked me like found it interesting that basically never heard anybody questioning my what i was questioning was the necessity of government yeah. i was like why do we why do we just assume we have to have a government like maybe society is self-ordering and I started getting turned on to some of that stuff and Occupy Wall Street was 
popular at that time or was, you know, emerging. And I wasn't down the rabbit hole. I never thought that 9-11 was an inside job, any of that. But when I started looking into things because I had to talk about them, I immediately thought this looks like a Soros setup. They had people on the ground who were ha- were holding signs written in English, but who didn't speak English and didn't know what they were doing there, that they were being paid for it. And I, you know, it's it is always hard for me to get my mind completely around the dialectic and the controlled opposition and so much like real value or true things come out of the other side, yet they always, they, big T, they always seem to get the upper hand. And I mean, as we go along, I would love to dig a little deeper into, you know, what you think is the true nature of this stuff. And I do think it probably originates in Skull and Bones or other societies like that, where that's, you know, very small group of people really know the true nature of how they shape, you know, how they shape what we focus on, really, how they shape the back and forth of politics. And, you know, I I have an interesting quote. Maybe I'll maybe I'll read it to make clear what I'm looking for this. So there was a quote this is just right out of Wikipedia saying Lanny Davis in the 1968 Yale yearbook said if if the society had a good year, the ideal group, like the however many people they tap in a year, a dozen people or something, would consist of a football captain, a chairman of the Yale Daily News, a conspicuous radical, a whiff and poof, I don't know what that is, a swimming captain, a notorious drunk with a 94 average. So I feel like of these categories, that would probably be the one I would be in. A filmmaker, a political columnist, a religious group leader, a chairman of the lit. Again, I don't know what that is. A foreigner, a ladies man with two motorcycles, an ex-serviceman, a Negro, if there are enough to go around, and a guy nobody else in the group had heard of ever. So I felt like they just start from the beginning with this hodgepodge of people for a reason. And I just thought even Occupy had that, you know, it's a setup, but it is heroic for some people. And there's a reason behind it all. Wow. Okay. Well, let's let's take a step back and examine what you just quoted. First of all, whiff and poof is a, like another, I mean, you could kind of consider them like dandies. But the, it's like a chorus. So whiff and poof is like a singing group. They're, yeah, awesome. Yeah, JC, the Yale Whiff and Poofs is a collegiate a cappella singing group established at Yale University in 1909. It is the oldest such group in All the right. United now, States. Now JC is stealing my thunder. You weren't. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but it's fun. I you said, I- I'm really trying to like sit back and let my guests say everything. But I like the conversation oh, and yeah. you said we could do it that way. Oh, you could. You could. I don't mind. The whiff and poofs, yeah, they're, I would call them kind of like the dandies, like the, culturally that they're kind of like, you know, uh, men who are a little bit feminine, but that's like a dated term. Yeah, but, metrosexual. Yeah, I think that quote is in the context of that time period, because what happened around then was there was a shift. The secret societies realized, okay, the jig is up to a certain degree. We can't just be a bunch of stiff white guys with family ties going back a bunch of generations because people are going to catch on to this and they already were. So they adopted that, you know, sort of uh, camouflage of let's bring every man into this, you know, I mean, even a Negro, if there's enough to go around, I mean, think about how da- like dated that <laughs> world is, but let alone 
like an idea that oh we'll include one it's like south park token right i mean yeah 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 really what that is and and right in a in a way that's what the secret societies did they began to do this sort of like identity politics which i mean we've seen how that's evolved through the college system and become a really you know a sort of uh step by step with cultural marxism right it's sort of like a precursor to that in a way so you have quotes from that time period where you know, secret society members would be very upset uh, if they did not get a tap because they're all, you know, meant to bring the next guy in from the younger class. They didn't, you know, represent their ethnicity somehow with their choice of person. Like a, a Korean student got so upset because he had to select a Japanese guy and that was the only Asian, you know, person that was eligible. And he was so upset because it wasn't a Korean person. He felt like he was dishonoring his, you know, lineage or something. So they definitely had this like shift because traditionally the secret societies were, you know, all male and all white. Right. And yeah, wasp, right. Protestant. And then not to mention no Jews, no, you know, Catholics. So yeah. And even more so very specific type of Christian denomination. So all of that slowly, you know, loosened, but really it was always a part of their mindset because you have to understand that the Yale and Harvard colleges started as ministries with uh, preachers, right? I mean, pastors, clergymen as the, you know, professors. So it's a religious school by, by origin. (laughs) And that religious ideology is a Calvinist ideology. And part mm-hmm. of Calvinism is the idea that the elect are chosen by God to fulfill God's will. And, you know, you demonstrate that you are elect by God with wealth. So really their idea is a classist idea, right? And and the racism was was a part of that for a long time, but as you know, ethnicities sort of uh, diversified here in the United States and different groups of people have had their own, you know, sort of power centers, more or less. They realize, OK, we can't just have this sort of uh, you know, white supremacist kind of modus operandi. We have to, like, be more inclusive. But really, it's 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 all for that aim of elitism, right, by the elect chosen few. I've heard dominionism described that way. Have you heard of dominionism? I I didn't know that that was like the same philosophy with Calvinism. I knew Calvinism had like the work ethic thing. Really? And I just didn't. um, So, yeah. And then, right, the dominionism. And I believe I have heard that Ted Cruz came from a dominionist background and they feel like your success is a sign of your being favored by god which is definitely not a catholic concept at all like it's the opposite in catholicism so i can see how it wouldn't work uh yeah you know you do i i I think obus day might start trying to inject that into catholicism where you're going to have a way more powerful and influential group if you allow them to pursue earthly success and, you know, it undermines you like the whole Christianity, Catholicism, where Jesus's message will definitely undermine any worldly aspirations that a group has mm. because they don't aspire to it. Right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, you're, you're on to something because what I just found, and I didn't know this off the top of my head, but Dominion Theology is applying uh, Christian biblical uh, perspective to politics. So it really doesn't, it doesn't have a denominational skew. It, Ooh, just, interesting. Anybody who takes their biblical belief and applies it politically. And the Calvinists certainly did that. I mean, New Haven started not as a city, but as a colony. And this colony was built with the ideal of a utopia under God. And this utopia would be managed by a group of clergymen. So essentially we're talking about uh, what is it? A uh, a government run by priests. I don't know the proper term for that. Right. But they, well, it's a haven. I, was that why they named it that? A haven. A haven is a safe harbor. Yeah. A haven right. is a you know place of shelter. Well, and that's exactly it's how they felt. You know, when they were they were exiled, so to speak, from England and and other places in Europe. The Protestants came here to you know escape the wrath of God that they saw coming to the sort of sinning. Anglican Church in England, right? So they felt like they were exiling themselves, getting out of the way. They knew the old world was going to crumble. So they said, let's get out of there. God's going to punish those people and we'll start our own thing over here. So yeah, New Haven was not coincidental, uh, not to mention the like harbor where New Haven's actually uh, positioned is very uh, suitable for shipping. So there's big oil tankers that still to this day go in and out of New Haven Harbor. So yeah, it definitely is a, a safe harbor, a safe haven. Mm. And, and even the the geology of New Haven is interesting because, you know, in their minds, the Bible, the, the, the Protestant settlers, the Puritans, as they were called, you know, the Bible was pretty much all they were educated with. So in their mind, you know, they had of all these biblical scenes going on. So when they saw East Rock looming over this alluvial bay where two rivers form right at the, you know, the, the water line. I mean, this is straight out of the Bible where I don't know exactly what part of the Bible, but, um, you know, I think Ezekiel or somebody has shown a vision of like what a city, you know, looks like, you know, God's, you know, holy city. And he's like, this is what it looks like, you know, and there's like a, a dome on the rock and there's the rivers going to the shore and this city right in between the two rivers. And that's exactly how New Haven is created in between two rivers with this mountain kind of over, uh, you know, not too far in the distance. And to this day, now they have a soldiers and sailors monument with the lady of peace on top of this East rock mountain. So, you know, this is all, uh, ingrained in the story of New Haven's colony. They certainly were living out this sort of biblical, uh, role play, right. And it says like, we would call it like a role playing game in a way. Uh, I don't think they would appreciate that, but I, I mean, we could think of it that way because obviously the world didn't end in 1600s and that's what right. they, they really thought that, you know, that was part of, uh, part of the, the worldview. And, and another thing that's kind of deeply sad is that they saw the native Americans as, um, you know, Babylonians, right? The Indian, the Indians were, were not considered like 
you know, rightful owners of their own land. They were considered like these like fallen people who had escaped the flood somehow and were not worthy of living. They were like exiles themselves, right? Go ahead. I have to say every atrocity that was ever committed by so-called Christians against other people, whether it's colonizing, it's indigenous people, it's slavery, even I would bring it forward to abortion. They start with the notion that the person that they're oppressing is not actually a person, doesn't have a soul, and is standing in the way of progress for the people who have more value. And, I, and it always disturbs me because I, I see the reflection of the exact same language that they use right. with the abortion thing. And people will say, well, they didn't have an appreciation for in the slave times, colonial times. They didn't really know. They really thought that those people didn't have souls. But then I did stumble upon some contemporary writings from the time that basically say that's complete bullshit. You know what you're doing. It's just an excuse. And I've always found that reprehensible. Yeah. I just, I, as a, the stealing land from people and yeah. acting like you have the Ten Commandments is just yeah. unacceptable. I agree. And, and that's a big motivation for me, you know, uh, zooming out a little bit because people are like, how does this connect to skull and bones? So, you know. No, it, I love it. Are, I love the big picture. Yeah. I just love it. And it does remind me of Michael Wong, who I know you're friends with. Mm, Mike's the best. Yeah. yeah. He, he definitely inspired this in a, in a big way. Um, but yeah, I, I think there is a, a deep, deep reason why New Haven became the seat of Yale and then Skull and Bones invades Yale in this very, uh, interesting way, almost taking over the school and really changing the course of history. I mean, World War One and World War Two, uh, our involvement as Americans, it really wasn't uh, accidental that we got involved. We were involved to the from the beginning. The arms companies in the United States, even specifically in Connecticut, uh, were selling guns to both sides: Russia, Germany. I mean, all of these nations. They were selling oh ammunition, God. weapons. So you know, this is sort of coming from people who have very religious extremist views. We don't think of them as religious extremists because we're exposed to Christianity to the point where it's almost confusing. I mean, we're both Catholics. I grew up Catholic and I really, I I never really paid attention in church. And I almost felt like that was purposeful. Like they were like boring <laughs> us out of becoming interested because interesting. Yeah. Has so like many school. weird secrets. Yeah. They don't want you to be interested. They only want the people who are like, you know, I'm not even going to say what I was about to say, but anyway, they, they, they have this like really interesting perspective on the future that is totally, uh, you know, constructed out of theology. And I think this is really dangerous. And to be super clear, I also think that this scientific materialist worldview is it's kind of in the same vein. So, you know, I'm not arguing for either side here. I'm not some kind of, you know, sneaky atheist who's trying to argue against religion, but I'm also not like a fundamentalist anything who's trying to argue against like my enemy religion either, right? So that's important to, to maybe say. <laughs> yeah, I, I find him, uh, I, I always give uh, Tolstoy a shout out when something like this comes up because he was a spiritualist anarchist you know who, who said he, he that- He married in uh, New so Haven. 
Or his Tolstoy? I think is his son is buried in possible. New Haven. Oh, really? Well, New Haven to... and was buried in New Haven. Yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off, but it was No, that's interesting that it would come up. But he what he would Tolstoy's conclusion was that Christ's message is completely antithetical to the way the nation states are set up, the way government's set up, the way war is set up. And he just couldn't anybody who's a true Christian could not abide the the way that European politics were arranged. And furthermore, he he kept going back and forth, like, is there a God? Is there not a God? Like, it seems so obvious there's a God to me sometimes that it seems so obvious that there's no God. And he ended up landing on there is a God. And, and if I recall correctly, I used to read a lot about him, but it's been a while. He gave up uh, literature like fiction writing, although it was spiritual and, and really a fantastic way to deliver a message that was was interesting and it was engaging to your point about just like listening to uh some you know droning or whatever but he then just focused on spiritual writing and the literary world was annoyed but of course if you really believe then you're really going to want to dedicate your life to it and you're really going to want to be honest and you're not actually going to use it as a way to justify your own you know your own position like updike would say it's uh, convincing a man uh, something's true when his paycheck depends on it being not true sure. is impossible. So yeah. you have to, if you really believe in a God, you have to liberate yourself from that connection. And so that's why I feel like this materialism yeah. well, has to be a corruption of religion or true Christianity, what you're talking about. Like that's the opposite in my opinion. Absolutely. And what's really interesting is Yale is kind of a, a kind of nexus point for these ideas, but because Funny enough, I was just speaking with Dr. Joseph Farrell, who you may be familiar with. And he's a living legend of an author. He's written like more books than anyone else in the conspiracy world. I was just talking to him yesterday. And the way he described Calvinism when I brought this subject up was Christianity without Christ. So it definitely makes sense that this materialistic, scientific materialism, atheism would make its way into the Ivy League from New England. Keep in mind, most of the Ivy League schools are in New England, uh, aside from like the ones in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, it's not really considered in New York. Oh yeah, so you mean yeah? New England, it's more mid-Atlantic. But we're gonna we're gonna circle back. We're gonna wrap a few things up. So it was his second son, Eli yeah, I see that Tolstoy, yeah. who who was buried in New Haven. It's interesting because there's this whole little community called Little Russia that I stumbled upon one day driving around Connecticut, and turns out he was a part of fi- founding that. So very interesting. He was a writer himself, himself. So he kind of carried that, uh, you know, lineage into New Haven's history. And New Haven has just this who's who's of burials. I mean, if you're into graveyards and stuff, like I'm not particularly into graveyards. I'm more approaching this from the history perspective. But everybody who's left their mark on American history. I mean, there is so many people that have either been to New Haven or were buried in New Haven. I mean, it's really an important place in American histories. But but you do, you are sensing energy there. You opened with that. Yeah. Well, let's... let's so, I, I mean, could contribute. Because I, I do want to kind of answer your question, like, how did I get interested in... Yes, yes. So I was a student at, at Gateway. I really became more interested in learning from my surroundings than from my classes. I had like one or two classes that I was interested in and they're both related to things I'm doing now, anthropology and art history. So uh, I was taking those kind of things I was learning and carrying them into 
uh, my little walkabouts through New Haven. And, you know, I'm a stoner, so I would always just look for a good place to, to light up and hang out and maybe read a book for a few, you know, 30, 30 minutes, an hour in between classes. And one day I'm sitting at the green, this historic place that I really had no knowledge of. And I run into a gentleman named Amos who, you know, I didn't know him from Adam, but he saw that I wore a, a shirt that had Sitting Bull on it. And he recognized Sitting Bull and he's like, oh, you know about Sitting Bull? What do you, what do you know about Sitting Bull? And he told me he's a Native American. So we kind of got into this conversation that evolved into a friendship. And I asked him why he moved from Arizona to New Haven of all places. Cause I mean, other than Yale university is really nothing to offer in Yale, unless you're like one right. of these like Ivy league people, you really have no place there. Um, and it was high crime for people outside the gates. Oh, and not even outside the gates right there in the center green. I mean, you could see everything from overdoses to off out, you know, drunkards right. fighting. I mean, it's, it's definitely, and then there's like guys in like, you know, $5,000 suits walking by like, whoa, yeah, <laughs> you know? So yeah, it is, it is a weird kind of mixing melting pot, but, uh, yeah. So Amos and I kind of hit it off and he moved to New Haven because in the early 1900s, Prescott Bush went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma and desecrated the grave of Geronimo by Digging up his oh, yes. taking his thigh bones and his skull. Oh, that makes me want to throw up. Well, yeah, and imagine hearing this, like, as a kid who, you know, I'm only 18 at the time. I, I knew about conspiracy theories from the internet, but I had I had never been, like, faced with one, like, from a person who's like, hey, this happened right around the corner. So, you know, he takes me to the tomb, and it's on High Street. You could drive by it. You can walk by it. And this is really... You know, creepy kind of Egyptian looking building where they have Geronimo's skull and many others. And like I said, it got there through Prescott Bush, the grandfather of the most recent Bush president and the father of uh, President Bush Sr., H.W. Do you think that's undisputed? So there's a couple different things that with this case, because, you know, for the one the Native Americans who are related to Geronimo say this, okay? And there's a couple of reasons why I believe it. Uh, what, for one, the grave site of Geronimo after the, uh, you know, burial, I think 40 years after the burial, after his body would have been taken by Prescott Bush, uh, they they placed like this cement kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it, foundation over his grave and then put like this monument, this stone monument. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Yeah. It looks like other stone pyramids that are built by Rosicrucians, specifically oh, in yeah. Pennsylvania. Uh, you have some that are, you know, like the James Buchanan monument. I mean, it looks almost just like the Buchanan monument. And it has a, a imperial eagle on top of it, of all things, which I don't think Geronimo's like <laughs> symbol was an eagle. I mean, his name doesn't have anything to do with an eagle. So I don't understand why they put that there. But, you know, the Skull and Bones folks have been approached by several different people. There was a gentleman who uh, tried to, like, uh, go to Yale and uh, 
you know, raise a big stink about it. I think it was while Obama was president and he tried to like sue basically the presidency for not kind of uh, prosecuting this because there's a whole federal law protecting grave goods, the Native American Repatriation Act. So uh, this is like a federal matter. I don't know the exact specifics to this case, but um, I think the the gist of it was you know, it got back to Bush who said, you know, oh, well, we don't have anything to do with that, you know, but there have been several attempts by different groups of Native Americans to approach Yale and get the skull back in the 50s. Uh, they approached Yale and Yale gave them instead of Geronimo's skull, they gave them a child's skull, like a very small skull. That That's really, scary. Yeah, which is scary. Uh, and it's also very like rude i don't know so, right you know you're like here for your ancestor and they give you somebody else's corpse it's like what like right gritty? and they thought like it would be more plausible if it was tiny yeah. can i just read this little one Ding. line out of the wikipedia entry for the russell trust which you haven't gotten to yet but it's the i think it's maybe even synonymous at one point or it's a legal entity that yeah. is skull and bones but it says in night and, and you might have been getting to this but it's important if they're protected to show that they are protected in some regards. In 1943, by special act of the Connecticut State Legislature, its trustees were granted an exemption from filing corporate reports with the Secretary of State, normally being a requirement. So it's a trust that should have filings with the government and they're exempted from it. And it doesn't say that that was ever rescinded. It also says that Prescott Bush was the founder, one of the founders of the Russell Trust. Yeah, so when you consider Yale's age, it starts to make sense why they have such a sway with the Connecticut government. And uh, the Russell Trust Association is pretty much just the corporation behind Skull and Bones because once a member becomes uh, initiated, they're known as a knight, and then once they graduate Yale, they're they're known as a patriarch, and they remain oh. a member of the order for their entire life. Um, so it is a it's important for them to have like a, a legal body. I mean, most fraternities have a sort of like LLC or something uh, that they use to you know keep the finances above board. But yeah, that's exactly what's going on with Russell Trusts is they have this sort of uh, you know. Uh, a lot of leeway with financial institution. I mean, you consider the companies that have big headquarters or, or you know, places in New Haven, Bank of America, Key Bank, uh, you know, uh, Merrill Lynch. Um, there's a couple others that aren't coming to mind immediately. But yeah, it's definitely, you know, sewn up. Yale 1717 was when it was founded. And uh well, at least that's when the school was built in New Haven. It was founded in 1701, and they kind of jumped, they hopscotched from town to town until they eventually settled in New Haven. If it wasn't for Yale, I mean, New Haven would just be another, like, <laughs> shitty coastal city. Yeah. I mean, really, I, yeah. not to, you know, shade New Haven, but in the 50s, it was like a, a slum except for Yale. So Right. Uh, but I'm, I'm kind of jumping all over the place. So. So back to Amos, he, he kind of fills me in on this story with Geronimo, and uh, it's just really 
stuck with me because I've always been interested in Native American culture and, and I've always felt like a connection to nature and there's just this sort of symmetry there between the three. So I felt like it was right for me to understand this stuff. And uh, also being someone born on this land, I feel like we owe that these ancestors of our land, you know, that I don't know, explanation in a way, like figuring out their story, we owe it to them. So it was part yeah, of- I mean, crimes were committed. Right. Oh, terrible. You know, they're unsolved crimes. Yeah. We have an obligation as a, as a, as a self-proclaimed lawful society yeah. to at least, you know, a, bring justice, even if it's just to correct the record. Yeah. Well, and New Haven is historically like considered a friend, you know, like when- the Puritans moved into New Haven. The Quinnipiac who lived in the area were victim to the Pequot and the Mohawk, right? The Pequot and the Mohawk were other tribes that would go on raids. So, of course, the Quinnipiac were like, yeah, you guys have, like, silver and guns and all this stuff. Like, yeah, come hang out with us. Live here. Build here. You're good. Like, we love you. Be our friends. So, it wasn't always this sort of, oh, we're going to enslave everybody, but... You know, obviously, as time went on uh, and, and people began to colonize and expand, the Native Americans got pushed out or they got taken as slaves. And that part of history really isn't recorded as much because uh, they were just called Negroes at that point, which is really kind of sad that, you know, they all got lumped together, you know, Africans, indigenous. And given that a lot of uh, African voyages took place pre-Columbus, you have to wonder if the Native Americans were maybe connected to Africa to oh. begin with. Uh, yes, I don't know if you if you've ever heard me talk to uh, Noble. He's, I mean, I really, I just love him. He hosts the CFR Network, which is kind of a joke, but it's about like uh, faith and righteousness. Oh. I forget what the C stands for, but he's just an awesome dude and he lives in Birmingham, England, but he's of West Indian descent. And he uh he has some some very deep ideas about the African migration and even slavery, the slave trade. He thinks that, that this there's a yeah, there's a lot of there was a lot of he personally thinks that there were more Native Americans as slaves than Africans. Right. And there was a lot of mixing. So I, I was unaware of that history, but he would be the guy to talk to. He's recommended some books, but I do have 1,000 books now. And I just, yeah. I don't know whether to put the new ones on the top of the pile or at the bottom of the pile. But uh, but he's just super interesting because he's so open-minded and his culture is from there. His there. family is from there. And uh, yeah, please. I just, I adore him. So you might want to talk to him. Please connect me with him. Yeah. And Absolutely. Yes. I, do. I bring this up, not just to say that like, okay, so, you know, this random Native American guy told me about Geronimo, big deal. Well, you know, there's a, a really deep story here. I mean, I mentioned I have a sort of empathy for that to begin with. My, my father's best friend actually as a kid is a Native American person. So they're not like totally gone, you know, they're still Native American here in Connecticut. But they want to erase all the cultural impact right. by not letting us name. I mean, what could they, they won't actually say, well, they're named the Braves and that's not right. It's like when you name your warriors after a, a culture like that, that you, you might we think of as like the rhetoric 
of saying that they're primitive or whatever, but still they're what you aspire to in your in your warriors and your football teams and that kind of thing to I don't care whether it sounds like a pejorative name or not. It is it is, I think, an homage. And I think by erasing by saying you can't call them Indians. I mean, and I just that just drives me crazy. Yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, so many sports were you know, based on a lot, uh, like Native American games. I mean, lacrosse and, and all these other sports, hockey was also kind of informed by Native American culture. So yeah, to begin with, and, and Native Americans in a time were some of the best athletes in sports. So yeah, it is it is interesting to see yeah, and it, change. You do the NAACP. I mean, you, you're not going to, some groups decide not to, not to rewrite history, to whitewash it and still to keep, the continuity of, um, you know, that cu- cultural hat tip, at least for the Indians. So that just bothers me. I feel like they want to erase them. Say it again. This, though, because you're absolutely right. And, you know, New Haven, although starting off seemingly friendly to the Quinnipiac, eventually, um, you know, by the time Yale was founded, they were trading slaves in ports like New Haven. And the green was regularly used to hang slaves. Not to Oof. mention, and and again, when I use that word slave, we're not just talking about people who emig- were taken from Africa. We're talking about people who were born in America as indigenous people. So, uh, yeah, it, it's very tragic. There are over 6,000 bodies buried under the New Haven Green to this day. And all of that space is, uh, you know, just grass. Like, you can walk over it. You can, you know, just the homeless people sleep on top of, you know, ancient graves, so to speak. So... Yeah, the history of New Haven is is complicated, and I did not understand all that as I was sitting there, you know, 10 years ago. And as time went on, I dropped out of college and I, I got a, a job as a delivery guy, which led to another job as a delivery guy, which led to me being a bakery delivery driver within New Haven. And I had all of these, uh, you know, clients that were within Yale. So... I would be delivering goods to like, you know, Yale School of Economics, Yale School of Business, Yale Science Department. So I was all up in the college campus for like three or four years as a delivery guy. And some really weird synchronicities happened. And this is all before I started podcasting. You know, I've always been reading these books and listening to stuff like this, but uh, I'd never really realized like, oh, I have a place in this. I mean, the name of my show, my family thinks I'm crazy. My friends thought I was crazy too, because all I do is talk about this kind of stuff uh, until I had the outlet of podcasting. It really, you know, fell on deaf ears. But all of that to say that there are these like glaring synchronicities and one of them that just, I can't forget. Every Tuesday I would deliver to the Yale School of Economics. It's a small, it's a, a, a classroom built out of an old house okay and you, you see a lot of this kind of stuff because architecture is important in new haven so they don't uh they like to preserve a lot of these colonial older mansions and whatnot so this mansion is a school of economics and i would go there pretty early in the morning and the only person there was a janitor and there's the same janitor every time and he got frustrated with me knocking on the door because he's you know vacuuming he can't hear me so one day he teaches me how to like essentially break into this mansion, right? I jump over a wall. He said, put your pastries on the front step, 
jump over this wall, walk through here, and this door is never locked. So I'm like, okay, cool. A door that's never locked. That's interesting. So I go in and I do my thing. And so every Tuesday I had this weird little routine of jumping a wall, going into this building. And one Tuesday I walk in, I do my thing. I look down at the Yale newspaper and it says, on this day, George H.W. Bush passes away, former resident of New Haven, 88 Hillhouse Avenue. And I'm like, holy crap, I'm at 88 Hillhouse Avenue. That's This is the house that I'm in right now. George H.W. Bush lived here. George W. Bush was a kid living in this house that I've been, you know, jumping over the wall and getting into to deliver these pastries every Tuesday. So that kind of just smacked me on the the head and I realized like don't let what Amos told you go to waste like you know this is a this is a guy who shared truth with you you know carry that truth forward into the world and uh, and I've tried to do that as best as I can with this research that only became you know a bit available to me after like taking the risk and quitting my job starting this podcast right because when I was right. a guy working for Amazon, after I quit my job at the bakery, I started working at Amazon and I was doing like 10 hour shifts, five days a week. I had, I had no time to do any of this kind of research, but I had plenty of time to listen to podcasts. And that's when, you know, all these things started aligning. And, you know, sure enough, I start working for Sam Tripoli and that kind of helped grease the wheels to to meet really cool folks like yourself and and when you have a you have a great podcast it's very popular you know it seems to have a lot very high ratings thank you and i really love your style I, you're very good at it i uh, i don't i think there are a lot of podcasts out there and i i'm my style like to interview i just want to have a conversation because it's for my own amusement but <laughs> but that's not what you do you really you give people the time and space to explore their ideas and it's just you have very nice pace and sound of your voice i really really love your podcast so it's you were definitely uh answered a call oh wow thank you yeah and you know it was funny because one of the things i realized after i dropped out of school was i was becoming this autodidactic and not only like was I, I was kind of gaming the system because I realized I had a job at a Chinese food delivery place like straight out of college dropping out. And uh, and I would just read books in between my jobs because I had like, you know, a weird shift from like noon to like 10 p.m. And I worked like five days a week. So it was a great job. Like, I just sat there in this little restaurant and read my books, went out and did deliveries, smoked a little pot on my way back from delivering the food and, and just you know, kept going and, uh, realized like, okay, if I do this right, I can actually like educate myself and get paid to do it. So I kept getting jobs like that, where I had space to do that. And then, you know, reading on the job became like, people were like, why are you bringing books to work? Like, you're not here to read, you're here to work. So then I luckily found podcasts and that's when I was like, okay, cool. I can just stick a headphone in my ear and I'm, I'm good. I'm learning all this stuff. So yeah, I definitely feel like I went to school for podcasting in a way, like listening to shows for like five or six years kind of helped me see what I liked about podcasting and what I didn't like, you know? And and you did it. This is why I like your show, because you did it, obviously, from what you're saying, to learn. Ew. And there, there are a lot of, even in radio, when I was in radio, I had to come to terms with the fact that 
it's a lot of people are listening to pass the time, are listening to be entertained. And so if you listen to radio and it sounds like they're giving you information, a lot of it is just trying to tap into your emotions. That's why it's caller driven. And, you know, there's just stuff I learned yeah. along the way. And then I discovered that the only podcasts I really like to listen to are informative. And the ones that are trying to rile you up, the ones that are drawing big conclusions, that kind of derails me from thinking through things myself. But real like information, firsthand research, that's what I love about it. It just feels like it's depositing information directly into my brain when I really don't have time to just read and I can do something else. And I, you know, what I do, I do a lot of housework. Like I, you know, it's, I don't need to think, but I can't sit down and read. And it's just a great combo. And it's a secret way of learning. And I, you know, they, they want to keep you busy in these blue collar jobs, but you can make the most of it. I really recommend people do that. And I guarantee there's probably like 25 to 50% of the audience already doing that and bravo to them. So yeah, I'm with you. I think what was also really good about that was driving keeps a one part of your brain like doing a task, you know, whereas like now I'm sitting at my desk and listening to podcasts. I'm not retaining as much as when I was driving. It would all just kind of subconsciously fill in. And now I just make time to go for random drives just to get that feeling because there's really something about that. And it doesn't have to be driving. It'd be washing the dishes or chores, whatever, you know, if you ironing you, is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so, while and then, cleaning. so that's how I like to do this is normally I just am so sick of cleaning the kitchen. You would not believe how many times I've cleaned the kitchen many times a day it's i know i get people then say to me like why do you have your kids do it why do you make like a different meal for get whatever i got problems but i do a lot of dishes and i let them pile up so that i can uh just listen to a whole podcast well, like, and it is it's a pile of dishes it's like, that's a 30 minute podcast right there yeah yeah but it's like why do you, why do you let this stuff build up it's like because i got a plan <laughs> i love that so yeah, and, and to, to rope it all back in, I had these sort of synchronicities like the one I just described with uh, George H.W. Bush's house, and I realized, like, okay, there's a subconscious process going on. I'm, in, I'm integrating all this information into my mind. It's going somewhere. For whatever reason, I've always been kind of skilled at, at listening to something and then, like, communicating that to others. And for the longest time, nobody gave a, a shit, to be honest, so that's where the name of the show comes from really but uh with skull and bones you know it's it's a it's kind of an interesting story when i was a chinese food delivery guy a buddy of mine uh one of the only people i knew that even talked about conspiracy theories at that time 2011 2010 we were both like talking about loose change and inside jobs and things like that uh, he comes into the chinese food delivery place and he's like hey what are you doing with your life these days you should come by uh, to this fraternity I'm a part of. And I'm like, dude, I don't go to school. And he's like, neither do I. He's like, I'm a part of this fraternity. And he's like, it's fun. We drink, you know, smoke pot. And so I'm like, okay, I'm not really a party scene kind of dude. I'm sitting here reading books. I mean, like, think about it, right? I'm I'm a total nerd in a way, but I, I, I wanted to experience that college kind of life because the community college I went to had none of that. You know, it was just very like high school 2.0. So I go and I, I check it out and it ended up being really fun. And I got initiated into this, like basically fraternity, like, uh, 
you know, Delta Kappa Epsilon, Beta Kappa, one of these types, right? Like a, a lettered fraternity. And the weird thing about this fraternity is it wasn't associated with the school anymore because of some incident they had with another fraternity. But the guys were so, you know, uh, motivated, they they kept it going. And they, they even allowed like people who weren't a part of the school to be a part of it. So this kind of underground thing. And there is this aspect to it that vaguely connected to Skull and Bones because they had a Jolly Roger flag in their window. And I remember asking a brother like, hey, I know where that's from. Like, why do you guys have that? Like, I know what that's about. And they told me this story about how, you know, older class, you know, probably five years before I was there, they had the, you know, challenge of, of scavenger hunt. You know, this is one of the things that all fraternities make their you know, pledges do go out and steal a bunch of stuff. And Skull and Bones is actually famous for it. They call it crooking, right? And amongst the Yaleys, they're kind of known for doing this. They'll go and they'll like steal some kind of trophy or they'll steal someone's license plate. They'll even steal Geronimo's skull from his grave. I mean, I think that's where the tradition started. But, you know, this fraternity that I was in took part in this kind of crooking tradition. And one of the things that they crooked was this flag. And they said that they took it from skull and bones. And I said, how'd you take it from skull and bones? They don't have a flagpole. You know, I've been to their tomb. Well, come to find out they don't sleep in that dusty old building. They have a, a fraternity house set aside for certain members of skull and bones who, who want to live on, you know, in, in that kind of housing situation. And, uh, they had a, a flag on their porch that the guys in the fraternity I was a part of stole. So here's this kind of weird, you know, interlope between what I was learning about to then what I got involved with. And, you know, outside of, uh, that one incident, maybe one or two other smaller things, there really wasn't like a conspiratorial aspect to this fraternity. It was cool that they were like, you know, underground cause it was like no rules kind of, but in that environment, they had to have more rules because the, the, you know, eyes were on them more being like this party house off campus that, you know, the cops would get called on. So it was weird, like being in a fraternity of this reputation of like not respecting women and all this stuff. And that was totally the opposite, right? With this place, the guys were all like about like, oh, we have sober guardians of every party to make sure nobody gets, you know, hurt or, or taken advantage of. So that was my job. A lot of parties, I would you know, I couldn't drink. I would be able to smoke a little bit of pop, but they did really didn't want me to do that either. And you would just hang out at the party in one room and just keep watch, you know, and make sure nobody's getting hurt. That was kind of the, the environment that I went, you know, and kind of became a young adult through like this weird, like, you know, underbelly. <laughs> I've never heard of anything like that, but were, were the other members of this fraternity mostly Yale students or mostly college students or not even college anymore? Oh, so... There was in the history of the fraternity, a couple of students that joined who were Yale, uh, which was odd, but no, for the most part, this was a state Connecticut university. So this is in the same town as New Haven, but a different college. Uh, so there, there weren't any Ivy league people, but it was, it was all, yeah, it was all Southern Connecticut state university folks. And, uh, and a couple from like towns that were like close by who like knew about it from their friends, you know, like me, like I was from out of town. So I didn't really 
I, I fit in a bit because I'm a likable guy, but I, I definitely felt like an outsider even there. <laughs> and uh, it was cool to experience that. And, you know, a lot of synchronicities actually from that led to me working at that bakery. Uh, my friend that I made in the fraternity was the manager at the bakery that hired me to go and deliver throughout Yale. So, yeah, it's just, you know, one thing that leads to another. I know we meant to talk about Skull and Bones, and now I'm kind of doing like a Tony Robbins thing now. <laughs> I, think people really, I think people really should, like, if they could gleam anything from what I just said, like, gleam the fact that you don't need to rely on authority. You know, I always had this anxiety about authority in my life, and not in like a super rebellious way, because I recognized, you know, like being rebellious could actually compromise you more than it it, it could like free you. Uh, so I've been like careful about my rebelliousness. And I think people should should take calculated steps to free themselves from the system. And maybe you can kind of glimpse a little bit of that from what I've just talked about. Have you ever heard of or read How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World by Harry Brown? Huh. No, but I'll write that oh, down. He's the best. And it's one of those things where the first time I've mentioned it on the air was whatever, $12 at Thrift Books. And then the last time I looked, it was like $300. Like they just, I don't know why these great books disappear. But Harry Brown was a great libertarian. And he was... Uh, I remember when I was first dating my husband, Harry Brown was running for president. He died, of course, untimely, in my opinion, but he was a libertarian running for president. My husband, well, at the time, it was just my boyfriend, barely. And he said, who are you voting for? And I said, Harry Brown. And he said, who? And I said, Harry Brown, the libertarian. And he said, the what? <laughs> so that's how long ago it was. But Harry Brown was great. And he was, I love the one quote, if I can do it correctly, of his was, he said, libertarians must never define themselves in terms of uh, of liberal or conservative. We are not fiscal conservatives and social liberals. We believe in individual liberty and personal responsibility on all issues at all times. And his book, How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World, it really kind of put me off at the beginning because... He's saying, if you're in jail, you're not free. <laughs> so don't go to jail. Like, use your use your silver bullets wisely. Like, get, carve yourself out a life that you can enjoy. I, I do run up against the challenge of, if you do you not owe a, uh, a duty to your children to try to stop, kick the can of tyranny, or a, a debt to your ancestors who did the same like my family's highly you know really into liberty i was raised as a libertarian whether they called it that or not i was raised to have like limited government all that freedom moral compass everything so so it's just it's a great it's a classic he's the best and um but i agree with you for the most part and actually it's a major white pill to think that way because if you start your day thinking you have to change the world or or be this this brick wall between your kids and tyranny you're just you're defeated at the get-go but you can look back i'm sure there were plenty of of people who lived under the roman times who had miserable lives like you, you still there the i don't know if the world's going to change now that they have the technology to totally enslave us however i got one life i can't worry about the next somebody else's life that's in the future 
I'm going to do my part. And in the meanwhile, I'm going to carve out my cocktail time and, you know, like pet my dog and just try to have that bit of freedom and joy. 